Welcome back to Shootside. I'm your host, Ferris Simon. It's good to be back. Thank you guys for tuning back in. And today we have a really good episode on deck. But before we get to that, I want to thank our sponsors, the Pro Tour Group from Iowa. The Pro Tour Calf Sale has been around since 2003. 15 individual sales combined for over 500 head of cattle. The Pro Tour team will aim to build a relationship while helping families meet their individual goals. No matter if you're looking for a county, state, or junior national prospect, the Pro Tour group has the experience and proven genetics to fit your needs. Stop by any of the members after August 15th. Let them help you achieve your goals. Like I said in a previous ad read for them, the Pro Tour group is a great collective of people. Done business with a lot of them. I think I've been to about every spot. I highly suggest checking out that group in Northwest Iowa while you're on your fall sale tour. So thank you, Pro Tour. Much appreciated. Thank you for your support of Shootside. Today we have a topic, and it's been requested a couple times. It's discussing uh, embryo transfer, the pros and cons of different methods. What is embryo transfer and how do we maximize our results? And today joining us on the podcast is Mr. Steve Yackley from Yackley Ranches in Oneida, South Dakota. Uh, currently, Steve and his family operate a satellite center for Transova Genetics, but prior to that, they raised limousine cattle there at the ranch. Steve spent 13 years working with Express Ranches in their ranching operation, but since 2008, he's been a satellite center there in Oneida for Transova and does both conventional and IVF flush work up there and manages a whole slug of donors and Recips and has just a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of data, and is a very valuable source of information that I can tell from what little I've spoke with them, but especially those producers that I know that utilize Steve to manage their donors and their ET programs. Everyone that I've ever talked to that uses them has nothing but the very, very best things to say. So it is with great pleasure that we go shoot side with Steve Yackley. Well, Steve, thank you for coming on. Welcome to the podcast. We really appreciate it. You're more than welcome. Glad to be here. So just for the listeners that are unfamiliar with your operation, can you give us kind of a brief explanation of what you guys do up there in South Dakota at your ranch? Well, basically, we took a a purebred cattle operation and turned it into an ET center. And that didn't take a lot because you know, a lot of the same things we're doing, we did with our own operation. And when I was affiliated with Express Ranches, we're doing now. You know, we've done embryo transplant for as long as I can remember, all the way back to when embryo transplant, we were putting embryos in surgically. And all that does is date me to a degree because most people that are listening to this think you got to be kidding me. No, I'm not kidding you. And there'd be a lot less embryo transplant done if we were still putting in embryos surgically into the recips. So, yeah, we remodeled a barn to flush cows in. But, you know, as far as the facility change, there really wasn't that much of a facility change at all. Gotcha. I have some questions about surgical embryo transfer, but for some of our listeners that are unfamiliar with what embryo transfer is, can you give us a uh, 
simple down and dirty explanation of what we're dealing with here today? Well, embryo transfer is simply put, you're going to mass produce or multiply some of the most superior genetics there is in the country. And there's many, many, many reasons why you do that. But the nuts and bolts of it is you have a great cow that's produced some calves or a calf or multiple calves that have risen to the top of that genetic pyramid. And that's why you want to create more of them. And, you know, maybe it's a female that you raised or maybe it's a female that was purchased either solely or in partnership. And there's many, many reasons why you need to create more of that genetic pool. And you're doing that through, essentially, you're getting her to have more than her usual one calf per year, right? And we're transferring those embryos to recips. Yes. You know, and conventional embryo transplant, that takes a little longer than in vitro IVF, in vitro fertilization, you know, you know, and there's, there's reasons to do one over the other. And there's obviously bells and whistles on both sides. But, you know, you're just trying to create more of that genetic package in a faster way. You mentioned there's advantages and differences between conventional embryo transfer and IVF, which IVF, it seems like a certainly a newer technology that's kind of taken hold over the past couple of years. Starting with conventional embryo transfer, I mean, what are some reasons or criteria you would go that route? rather than IVF, and then we'll flip and go the other direction. First of all, in conventional ET, you're asking that cow, well, first of all, you're giving her superovulation shots, FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone shots, and you're telling her to mass-produce oocytes in the ovaries, and then you're also telling her when to come into heat and then she's got to ovulate, she has to fertilize, and she has to incubate her own embryos for seven days. And as most people that have done any embryo transplant know, any embryo has to be between six and a half and seven and a half days of age to withstand the stress of either transferring to a recip fresh or going through the freezing process that's your window of opportunity. And that cow has to do all that. Obviously, you're helping her. But she, you know, between the two of you, you've got to do that together. Where IVF, it's not. I mean, you know, IVF, you're asking her to mass produce oocytes in each ovary. And you're going in there, you know, and you're with an ultrasonic guided needle. And you're aspirating or you're sucking out those oocytes on each ovary and the rest of it we're doing for and that's why you can do IVF every two weeks versus a 40 or 42 day turn on conventional you know because of the stress of you know the uterus the you know the actual trauma if you will you know you're going in on a conventional ET cow you're going inside of them with a catheter and and you're blowing a little balloon up that keeps the solution from going back out into the track, you know, and you're actually putting saline solution 
in each horn and flushing the, the embryos that are fertilized out of her. And there's some trauma with that. And that's why the cows that we've got here are on a 42-day turn in conventional embryo transplant and a 14-day turn in IVF. Because there's less trauma on the cow to just aspirate the oocytes. Correct. And in my, I guess, limited use of IVF, it seems like you use less FSH on those IVF cows too. Correct. And for the last eight years here, and that's how long we've been doing IVF on this place, is about eight years. We've been exclusively, for the exception of maybe one or two or three cows in the last eight years, it's all been one shot. And it's a double strength, one shot based on age of the cow, age of the female, breed of the female, the history. If we've got some history on these cows, all of that will dictate the level of FSH. But you're right, it's a lot less drug than you're using in conventional embryo transfer. If the turn is shorter on IVF and uh, there's less trauma, then what, I mean, I still do a lot of conventional ET. I seem like I get better conception rates, but that's more anecdotal to this operation. And like I said, I don't personally do a lot of IVF. What are some of the advantages of conventional? Because you still do a lot of conventional work up there. Correct. You know, the main push, I guess, that may not be the right term, but the migration is probably the better way to put it, of IVF has been solely based on preg rate. And I said this years ago, that when the two meet, the preg rates are equal between conventional embryo transplant and IVF. When they're equal, there will be, you know, pretty much exclusive IVF because you can make embryos quicker and all these things. But, and that's been the evolution of IVF. When I first got hooked up with Transolva 12 plus years ago, they weren't freezing IVF embryos and they were only putting them in fresh. And the conception rate to use the term poor would be an understatement. And for, for my client base, I mean, I like to, I get to know these people really good. I like to be able to, I'm a little short on friends anyway, and I don't need to have 20, 30% preg rate. That doesn't necessarily help you on your friend basis. But, you know, the evolution of IVF has gotten a lot better and the preg rate is driven that. An example of that would be probably a year and a half ago to two years ago, we were still doing more conventional here than we were IVF to the tune of about 100 cows in conventional embryo transfer and 50 to 60 cows in IVF. Well, in that short period of time, it is absolutely swapped around big time. We've got up till this coming next week is a flush week for us next week. You know, we've been doing three days of IVF here and one day of conventional. That's how fast this has turned here in regard to conventional versus IVF. And you're saying that's because the conception rates on IVF continue to improve, correct? whereas conventional 
embryos have remain more or less stagnant over the years. If you do it right, you kind of know what you can expect. Well, this is the way I've explained it to people. And when you work with me, I tell you the truth all the time. And that's the best way to do it. And then whatever you're doing, but best way I can describe it, the masses of IVF embryos, you know, like last year, I think in 2019, Transolva as a company did little over 50,000 IVF aspirations, okay? And with those embryos, the masses still say around 45 or 50% conception, okay? Well, various cows will do better, you know, certain embryos will do better, you know, certain genetics will do better than others. But what I've always told people, you know, you know, you don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. You want to be just the opposite. But what I tell people, if you're used to doing conventional embryo transfer and you're getting, you know, around 65, maybe a little better in conception rate on your conventional embryos, you can, you know, to start with, you want to make sure you tell these people that they're going to be 10 to 12, 14% back of that. But that's not necessarily the, been the case over the last eight years here. I mean, we've had clients that have done phenomenally well with their pregrate. And I always kind of like it when they send me a picture of their calculator. They're so excited after, their, after they get done preg checking. You know, there's so what we've found is not in every case, but in a lot of cases that the pregrate for conventional embryos is almost equal to the preg rate in IVF, which is pretty exciting. Would you say the the producers that have the best success with their IVF conception are also probably the producers that manage their cow herd to the highest ability as well? No question. And not only manage your cow herd, and I'm a big, big believer and always have been and and feeding and making sure these cows are on a chelated mineral program year round, you know, and I'm no mineral salesman, but I can tell you that it will pay you to have your purebred cows on a chelated mineral program year round. But with that said, I also am a big fan of having your recipients on the same mineral program because you've got to treat those cows almost as good or equally as good as your purebred cows, your donor cows, because they're going to carry your best calves because, and your most expensive calves, because this is a lot of things and cheap is not one of them. This is not a cheap project. And to put your most expensive embryos, whether it's production cost or genetic cost into subpar cows, doesn't and has never made any sense to me. I completely agree with you. I think sometimes uh, the approach is, well, she's just a recip, you know, she's just a, just a recip. That's not the donor cow, but I fully agree with you. What you just said is those cows are carrying what should be your highest revenue calves. In fact, those cows will have, if you got them mated up right and you did your uh, matings right on your flush work, they should return 
the most revenue, even more than your AI cows. So to skimp on minerals, skimp on nutrition, just because she's a recip, to me is a non-starter. So I'm glad you brought that up. What some people are doing is, you know, in some of these breeds, you know, there's some genetic defects that have come, that have arisen over the years. And those particular cows, based on their pedigree, based on their EPD profile or whatever, they've kind of fallen out of favor within that particular breed, but they're still raising big stout calves every year. So what guys have done is they've actually taken some of those cows, even though they're purebred cows or whatever the case, and they're turning them, basically they're just changing color of the ear tags and they're making those cows recipients, which is smart from my vantage point is these are cows that have had in the herd, you know, and performance tested them. I mean, these cows come in with big calves every spring or every fall, whatever the case may be on your calving season. And those cows have really, really flourished in regard to making really good recepts. What I think I hear you saying is, aside from management, which I'd like to retouch on management, other things that we could do with our cow herd and recep herd, but you need to go out and either locate or have nice recips in your herd if you really want to maximize your results and maximize the dollars returned when you go to sell those calves. Don't put them in some low quality cows. Without question. And and to me, if you're just going to go out and try to find a bunch of recips to raise your ET calves, from my vantage point, I really like putting embryos in wet cows for a multitude of reasons. And one of the couple of the big reasons is, is if you're looking at a set of cows that are 30 days post-calved and you can see by the hair of the calf that, you know, that calf's getting enough milk and you can see that she's hitting on all four quarters, you know, she's stayed in a certain body condition score that's acceptable and her nutritional plane is on an incline. Those are the kind of cows that you know, 30 days later, you can have some pretty good success and on your preg rate and, and you've got pretty good trust and faith that they're going to be good mother cows for your ET calves nine months later. You brought up uh, body condition and inclining nutrition plane, which whether you're doing ET work or AI work, we're wanting those cattle to be on an increase of a body condition. But what do you think is an appropriate body condition for those cattle as you're kind of coming into breeding season? You know, maybe five and a half. I just cringe when I see a set of cows where they're hauling recips into here or I go on a, a guy's place and, and look at the recips and they're pretty thin and, you know, they're milking their heart out, but they're thinner than I'd like. And I just don't think that for the amount of money you've got invested in the genetics and the production cost on these embryos that you want to be putting, you know, high priced embryos and body condition score two and three cows. I just think you're asking for trouble and, you know, the cost per calf at the end of that project is going to be pretty high because you're going to be pretty disappointed with, with your preg rate on some of those lower body condition score cows. And is it safe to say on, fat cows, you're also going to run into some problems too. If you start getting into those sevens and eights and God forbid, a nine, and you start throwing embryos at those, I wouldn't think that would be too successful either, would it? No. And see the other part to speak to that particular body condition score, 
here is the biggest problem with that is you've got enough fat around the reproductive tract that on those, you know, seven, eight, nine body condition score cows that you're cutting off the circulation around the reproductive tract, which inhibits cows to get bred, whether it's AI or taking an embryo. And so it's kind of a delicate balance there that you've got to be pretty careful that you don't get them cattle too fat. And then the other thing that I mentioned a minute ago, you really want, whether you're breeding a set of cows, bull breeding them, AIing them, or putting embryos in, during the breeding season, you want that incline in nutrition to be up. You don't want it to be down. If it's going down, you're asking for some trouble there too. How important is it, and I just thought about this, how important is it to keep those cattle on a solid incline with like a similar feed stuff? Because I think sometimes where I've heard some of my friends get into trouble is maybe they'll go in the springtime when they're breeding and they got some fresh forage coming on and they take them from a dry lot where they're getting fed out of a wagon where they're probably inclining and they throw them out on some grass that maybe doesn't have as much strength as they thought, and they get kicked in the mouth with their conception rates. How important do you think it is to maintain a similar, not only nutritional standard, but like same you know, type of forage or feed? It's absolutely everything. And that's one of my pet peeves. And I just cringe when I hear about people dry lotting these cows and like you said, they're on a nutritional plane that's going up and then the grass is getting green and they put embryos in and they switch the nutrition from bunks to grass and they are just hammering their preg rate when they do that. They're absolutely hammering it. And the other thing that people that have done, whether they're AI or ET work, people that have done a lot of that know this, but for those people that are listening that don't know it, the most critical time of any embryo's life, whether it's an AI pregnancy or AI embryo or an ET embryo, is day 14 to day 18 or 19. I mean, you absolutely do not want to change anything. Don't move pastures, don't haul them, and hope to God you don't ever have a weather change in that time frame, because that will create a lot of problems on your preg rate. So what you're saying is if you are going, you know, and I, as the listeners know, and as you know, now I live in California, we don't have near the mud problem that our Midwest friends do, but let's say you have them dry a lot and you're tired of, you know, dealing with the mud and you want to get them out to grass, you better at least wait till past until you're past day 19. If you at least okay. more like 25 or 28 days of that embryo's life. Of course, we're putting in seven day embryos into seven day heat. So the day you put the egg in, it's seven days into the program. But if you're going to go to grass, you know, versus go from dry lot to grass, I would dang sure want to do that a minimum of 30 days before you put embryos in them. A little while ago, you mentioned uh, you were talking a little bit hinted on post-calving interval, which on our phone conversation before this podcast, you discussed how important of a factor that is. 
ideally where, you know, how soon after those cows calve, do you like to start setting them up? Well, that's another huge factor in all of this. I need to say this, if you do enough little things, right, it adds up to a big thing. And this is just another thing that we're going to talk about now that is to some people a little thing, but it's not okay. On wet cows, that are three years and older. I want to make sure that them cows are minimum post-calving 60 days the day the embryo goes in. If you're going to put embryos in wet twos, I want to make sure that them cows are a minimum of 70 days post-calved the day the embryo goes in. And that's just two different contemporary groups that and if you crowd that, you're not going to like your pregnant. The best, and I cringe when people say, well, you know, we tried to move her up a little bit. You know, yeah, she's only 40 days post and we're going to put in a high-priced embryo. I mean, you know, you just heart bleeds for that project because you just know that that pregnant on that particular embryo and that particular cow that's only 40 days post is not going to be what you want. And then people have asked me over the years, well, what's the best way to move a cow up in their calving interval? Put them with a bull because he is going to put a lot more semen in them than one straw that's unthawed or one embryo. The best way to do it is to put them out with a bull. Interesting. When you, about putting embryos in wet twos, and again, this is anecdotal evidence from here at my place, but you have a wealth of uh, experience and data. It seems that I don't get my wet twos to take embryos near as well as those ones that are three plus or, you know, on their second calf and on. Do you see that there in your operation that those wet twos maybe have a little lower conception rate? Is that something that we need to be aware of or is that just particular to this ranch? Okay. It's the best way I can answer that is this. When you're calving wet twos, you need to keep those cattle separate from the older cows because those wet twos need a little extra additional nutrition to get them to breeding time. Okay. If you run your wet twos with your three, four, five, six, seven year old cows all in the same group and their nutrition is the same for that group, you're, I would never advise somebody to put embryos in wet tubes. If your breeding program is good, one of the barometers you can check yourself on each and every year at preg check time is how well your wet twos come pregnant. If you take really good care of them wet twos, you will be surprised. They'll take embryos as good or better than the older cows providing they're in the right body condition score going in and they're 70 plus days calved and their nutritional plane is up, you'll be surprised how good those wet twos will take eggs. But you got to manage them separate. Right. Maybe that's where I went wrong. Maybe they're all out there together. I don't know, but I can tell you that that's how you do it. There's a lot of people that'll cringe when they say, well, you're surely not going to use them wet twos to put embryos in. Well, no, not if they've been managed right along with your three, four, five, and six-year-old cows. No, 
that then you shouldn't. But if you're going to manage them as a separate contemporary group, they'll be just fine. I need to incorporate that. That's probably something I need to change. Let's talk a little bit about different things that we could do to, aside from what we've already talked about, which is nutrition, mineral programs, to talk about increase in conception rate and embryo production. And I understand that you have a lot of data on a lot of different cows over the years. And you brought up when we're preparing for this podcast, the importance of time of insemination. Can you, I'll let you just take it from here. How about that? Time of insemination is the most critical part in any AI program, whether you're AI and cows to have their own calves or whether you're AI and donors to fertilize embryos. There's a lot of guys that are good AI technicians, you know, and can pass the pipette just great. But the most important part of that is heat detection and putting the cow in the chute at the right time. And I've got a lot of data because I've used the heat watch system since uh, 1995 on literally thousands of cows, spring calving, fall calving, virgin heifers, recips over the years you know i years ago we put heat watch on on the recips not that i wanted to create more work for everybody i just was a data freak that i wanted to know the difference between the preg rate on six and a half day heats to seven day heats to seven and a half day heats and actually having the raw data to back it up and you know an example of that would be back to AI. If you were heat detecting a set of cows and, and you were in the pasture this morning at daylight and you had 10 cows bulling, most people would breed those cows that evening. They're thinking, well, they're in at 5.36 o'clock in the morning. We'll breed them at 5.36 o'clock tonight. Well, the data suggests that, first of all, cows that are in heat do not sleep. Okay, the data suggests that at least 50 to 60% or five or six of those cows started bulling at 10, 11, 12, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, especially if they're on your list at daylight this morning. So most people breed cows too late. You know, the data doesn't lie, and the optimum time to breed a cow for AI, for her to have her own calf, is on wet cows from 8 to 12 hours after heat onset and on virgin heifers 12 to 14 after heat onset. And now when you're dealing with donors under superovulation, knowing that the ovulation times are scattered, that's why you spread out the semen, you know, two units of 12 hours, two units of 24 hours. Well, that doesn't necessarily fit all cows. If she's an early ovulator, you want to put some semen in her at zero hours or right when she comes into heat or one or two hours after she comes into heat. And maybe she's a late ovulator. You might want to stretch that out to 28 or 30 hours after heat onset. But the whole key 
in all of this, whether it's AI or cows under superovulation for conventional ET, is knowing exactly when these cows come into heat and don't guess because guessing costs a lot of money. So what I tell people that are doing on-farm flushes, and let's say you had a cow that was under superovulation and she was in heat this morning, daylight, okay? Put a unit of semen in her right then and there because she might've come in at one o'clock in the morning, okay? Well, put one unit in this morning, put two units in tonight, put one more unit in tomorrow morning, and then you can go to bed at night feeling that you've kind of got her covered. When you say heat onset, just so I can make sure we're making it clear for the listeners, you mean the first time you've seen her in heat. That's right. And there's some folks out there that think that you need to wait for them to not be bulling and riding anymore before you should breed them. Do you have any comment there? Yeah, a lot. The first thing I would tell you is don't. Don't do it that way. <laughs> because... When I went to AI school, I was taught that. I was taught you let them go out of heat and then breed them. That could not be further from the truth. I would rather breed a cow at four or five hours into her heat cycle than to wait 18 hours. Because good semen, and here again, not all semen is created equal, but good semen will last in a cow up to eight hours. Okay, so I've bred lots and lots and lots of cows in an AI setting and turn them out and they're still in standing heat hotter than heck. Okay. And don't I mean you can double breed them in there. It's your note at the bank. It's your high price cow or whatever the case may be. And it's your semen, but you can always double breed them if you don't feel, have that warm, fuzzy feeling in your stomach. But if you're breeding them cows, always, always go early rather than late. What about using sex semen? I've had some people say you should breed them later with sex semen because of it, it's not as viable or the cells because of the trauma through the sorting process, you know, creates an issue or something. Do you have any comment there? Well, I'm not a real big fan of sex semen because I've been burnt pretty hard with sex semen and conventional flush over the years. First of all, for people that don't know how sex semen is put up, it's either put up at 2 million cells per straw, and that's for AI use, and then 5 million cells per straw, and that's supposed to be for embryo transplant use. Well, I can tell you that when you're only using that many cells, now this might be a good time to mention, to people that don't know, but that's how sex semen is packaged. Conventional semen is packaged most of the time between 35 and 40 million cells per straw. So right off the bat, just sheer numbers, it's not a fair fight. Okay. So, you know, in a conventional flush setting, I try to get my clients not to use sex semen in that setting. Because even if you're going to use three or four units, you're only going to use 15 or 20 million cells if you use four units versus one unit of conventional semen at 
35 to 40 million cells. So if you use four units, it's 160 million cells up to maybe up to 160 million cells versus 20 million cells in a conventional embryo transplant setting. And it's not a fair fight. So what I try to do with that sex semen is I try to get people to utilize that in IVF. And that cuts one of the major costs of IVF out of the equation by utilizing sex semen in IVF and use sex semen that way. There's two reasons for that. One is if the sex semen is not very good, we can either use another unit of semen or change bulls right then and there before you fertilize the oocytes. The other thing about sex semen in an IVF setting is you're not going to get charged like Transova charges $400 to reverse sort. In other words, sort the bulls from the heifers. If you reverse sort a conventional unit of semen, in other words, sex it, we're going to charge you 400 bucks for that privilege to do that. Okay. If you've already got a sex semen, you're cutting that cost right out of it, right off the bat. There's a significant savings in IVF to utilize sex semen that way. I hope what I just said makes made some sense. No, it certainly does. Going back to time of insemination, I want to reiterate or amplify something you said that the time of insemination that you're suggesting is optimal in this conversation. That's not your opinion. That's based on data that you got through the heat watch system, which for those that don't know, that's like a transponder that you glue on their tailhead and it sends it to a computer. Correct. Yeah. I've got one of the original heat watch systems and it, you know, they've wanted me to change to a windows version, a fancier version. And I'm still using a lot of the same transmitters I used in 1995. You know, yeah, you've got to change out the batteries every once in a while. But this transmitter looks like a little garage door opener with a pressure button in the middle of it. When a cow rides and comes off, it sends a radio transmitted signal back to the barn and dumps in the buffer and then dumps into the computer. It tells us exactly the time of day and the duration of the mount per and, and heat watch will document one mount per cow per minute. So those of us that have heat detected a lot of cows knows that if a cow is really in hot standing heat and there's she's part of a bullard group, I mean, heck, she might get rode six times in a minute. Okay. Well, heat watch will document one mount per cow per minute. So I have my parameters set on my heat watch system, three mounts in a four-hour window for a two-second ride or more constitutes a heat. Now, if you had a heat watch system, you can change the parameters any way you want to, but I'm telling you, based on the data since 1995, on literally thousands of cows, that's a heat. Gotcha. Let's switch gears for just a second to share another issue that I think some of my friends I've seen happen or fellow producers, we're going to go back to talking about recips. When we start throwing eggs at recips and you get, you find some of those recips that are egg eaters or they're dry cows, which you said aren't your favorites relative to wet cows. At what point do you say, Hey, no more, I'm not feeding you any more eggs. Two or three. 
you know, and I, I say that in such a way that, you know, like Transova Genetics in Sioux Center, Iowa, that's the parent company. They run two to 3,000 recips all the time, and they're all dry cows. Okay, well, I don't think that it's fair necessarily to put three low-grade IVF embryos in one cow and then cut her head off or color or whatever the case may be. But two good embryos or maximum of three good embryos, grade one or grade two embryos, and then you just can't continue to spend money on her. So it's somewhat scenario specific. If you're giving them everything else management wise, yet she continues to not take a pregnancy, then it's time to go after two or three tries. That's right. And if you figure out what your cost of just production alone on those two or three embryos, that'll help you make that decision. Absolutely. Is there anything else that the listeners need to be aware of to kind of bump up or um, surge their conception rates? You know, there's a lot of little things, you know, we touched on on a bunch of them, but those are, like I said earlier, if you do enough little things, they add up to a big thing. And, And the big thing in an embryo transplant setting is pregnant cows. I do have, I realize I do have one more question. When you were talking about the time of insemination and breeding those cows, let's say they're in heat in the morning and you're wanting to breed them you know, let's say midday in a warmer climate such as myself, there's some people that suggest that's not a good idea to breed them when their body temperature is elevated or you want to wait till it cools off. Do you have any comment on that? Yeah, time of insemination is still the most critical. But one of the things you can do to, you have to be able to figure out how to lower the heart rate of these cows that are in heat and lower their body temperature. And if you do that, your conception will go up. Part of that is, is if you can figure out a way through your synchronization program to try to get these cows to come into heat in the dark of the night or the cool of the evening in the dark of the night, that is going to help with the body temperature that they're coming into heat in the middle of the night versus in the middle of the day. As far as breeding these cows, if you can figure out a way to separate these cows so they're not riding and riding and riding and riding. And there's several reasons why that doesn't work, but body temperature is one of them. You want to separate these cows so they're not riding and creating more body heat because of it. So any little thing you do, for an example, here, as soon as these cows, now this is on conventional embryo transplant, as soon as these cows come into heat, We've got a facility that's a barn that's 80 by 104. It's got 30 box stalls in there on sand. And as soon as these cows come into heat, we get them away from each other. Several reasons for that. One, to lower their heart rate down and get them in out of the sun or out of the cold, whatever the case may be. But you want to lower their body temperature down and lower their heart rate down and separation. Separation is one of the ways you can do that. On back to IVF, one of the things that's made that such a appealing to a lot of producers, whether it's club calf producers or purebred guys, you know, you can start doing IVF around 30 days post calving, you know, where in a conventional embryo transplant setting, 
you need to wait about 60 days post-calving. So there's another advantage. Another advantage to IVF is you can do pregnant cows. You know, once a cow gets to be 45, 50 days pregnant, typically you can create and still make embryos on that cow all the way up to about 100 days to 105 days pregnant, depending on how she carries that calf. So there are a lot of other advantages with that. You know, the other thing about IVF is if you normally calve, you know, in January, February, March, you don't necessarily have to take these cows out of their normal calving interval. You can still do an IVF run or two on those cows because you can start 30 days post-calving. You can do one or two IVF runs and then she'll still fit right back into your normal calving interval. And if like if you're an Angus breeder, for an example, and if the Pathfinder thing is is a big, big item to your operation, you can use these Pathfinder cows. You can create embryos on these cows that are young and they still won't lose their Pathfinder status because they're still calving in a normal calving interval that doesn't make them fall out of that. And the other thing about IVF on pregnant cows, which some people don't know, is some cows will make more embryos when they're pregnant than they do when they're open. And the short answer is, why is that? I don't know. Nobody knows. And some cows will create embryos when they're open, and when they're pregnant, they want nothing to do with it. Well, the thing you want to do there is quit spending money. Listen to the cows. No, that's very good advice. Is it possible in either of these scenarios? I guess it is because you said just listen to the cows, but where we get to overflushing these cows, where we spend, we don't ever let them just be cattle. It's very important these cows are treated like cows. And that's the environment that we have here that people really like. And that's why people have hauled cattle to us from a great distance is because these cows get treated like cows. They need to be on grass. They need to be with their contemporaries, whether they're pears or dries, they need to be separated that in those contemporaries. But to answer your question, you have to listen to the cows and you have to listen to the technician. And when the technician tells you, you need to tell this client that we need to rest her or she needs to get rebred, you need to do that. If you make professional donors out of these cows, you're asking for trouble because cows that are flushed for three and four years straight, it's A, really, really, really hard to get them bred because of all the fat around the reproductive tract but and the fat deposits they put in their udder over that length of time. But you have to listen to the cows and you have to listen to your technician that's got his arm inside of her because he'll he's got a pretty good barometer on what to do. On two-year-olds, you know, a wet two, our standard here, if you will, and every cow gets treated individually here. But typically, if you bring us a wet two, we will flush her through the summer. If she's got a January, February, March calf on her, we'll flush her through the summer. And we'll want to make sure that she goes back into their fall breeding program so she has a calf, you know, in the fall. Older cows, you can, you know, if they calve in the spring, so to speak, you can typically flush them cows through the summer and even into the winter and, and they'll set them up for, you know, put 
you know, an AI calf back in them, you know, breed them in April. So they calve in January or May and March, you know, if you breed them in May, they're going to calve in February, but you can keep them cows open, you know, and, and skip one full season on them older cows, if that makes sense. No, it absolutely does. But these cows have got to be managed on an individual basis. And one of the things that we do here on our conventional cows is we do a DFR, which stands for dominant follicle removal. But we do more than that with that ultrasound is if they have a dominant follicle, we're draining it with an ultrasound guided needle, which will only enhance their oocyte production, hopefully with the help of FSH. But the other thing we're looking for is we're making sure they're not cystic and we're making sure that they do have a CL before we start them on shots. And that's very, very critical. And then we're also looking at that ultrasound and that helps us with the looking at the population on each ovary will also help us dictate what their drug level needs to be prior to their conventional flush. And the number of cows that we've overstimulated here in 12 plus years, you can count on one hand. And I give the majority of that credit to doing a DFR prior to cows being conventionally flushed. Is that process something that's unique to a program like yours? Because if you're setting them up at home, you're not going to be able to do that. So that would be a disadvantage of setting them up at home. Yes. Problem with setting them up at home and I'm not trying to discourage people from doing that, you go in it with a little more risk because you don't really know if she's cystic. You don't really know if she's got a dominant follicle. What's a dominant follicle? A dominant follicle, simply put, is if your cow has a dominant follicle and you don't know it and you don't drain it, you could give her a 50-gallon drum of FSH, and she's only going to give you one, two, or maybe three embryos. If you drain the dominant follicle, we've taken cows that have been one, two, three egg producers and turned them into double-digit producers just by doing that one simple process. Because a dominant follicle is going to do exactly what the word just said. It's dominant. And it's not going to let that cow produce more embryos because of that dominant follicle. And, you know, you can give lots and lots of FSH and run the cows through the chute twice a day. And if she's cystic or she doesn't have a CL, she's not going to work. So you've spent a lot of time and energy and money for nothing. And FSH is not cheap. Labor is not cheap. None of this is cheap. Yeah, that's probably the take-home message of all of this is that none of this is cheap. But hopefully, if you execute appropriately and you make accurate breeding decisions and your management of your recips are right, you should see some level of uh, return on investment. That's, that's the whole goal. And, you know, these cows that, that have got extreme value, whether it's personal value or sale value or whatever the case may be, those cows, you can't just let have, you know, can't let them just have one calf a year. Because, you know, and I'm not suggesting that you do all young cows. I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't let these cows earn their salt before you go throwing a big checkbook at them. But these cows that, you know, have got a lot of value, you can't, in my opinion, you can't just let them have one calf a year. Because I think in the big scope of things, 
you've wasted that genetic potential by just letting them have one calf a year. Bottom line in all this is there is just a hell of a lot to this. And for the average person, well, I'll use a cliche that my dad said years ago. He said, in the purebred business, sometimes the cheapest thing you can do is buy one. You know, you give 50, 60, 70, 80,000 for a cow. Well, you have to do ET work. Well, that ET work can be a hell of a lot more money, input dollars, than what the original purchase price is, if you're not careful. Yeah, no question. You know, and like, like I said a little bit ago on the utilizing sex semen in IVF. Well, let me tell you the significance of using conventional unit of semen and reverse sortment, in other words, sort the bulls from the heifers, that process costs 400 bucks, okay? And if you only get four viable embryos at the end of that project, just to reverse sort the semen, you got 100 bucks an embryo in it. And that's just one line item. Yeah, just for the semen. You know, so just to reverse sort the semen. And hell, if you spent 500 bucks for the unit of semen, sheepers, the meter can run pretty fast in this business. And I'm, I'm as conservative as anybody. And I'm like I told you in our conversation before, I'm a great spender of other people's money, but I want you to get something for it. That's why when you deal with me, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to say, you know, I'm not so sure. You might think this through, you know, okay. In other words, if you got a cow that only gives you 10 oocytes, which is not a very big number, and you've got, you're telling us to reverse sort this semen on 10 oocytes, that is high stakes poker because you're only going to possibly get a third of those oocytes to turn into viable embryos. And you're going to reverse sort to semen. There's 400 bucks right there. So you got a hundred bucks an embryo minimum in just that one line item on 10 oocytes. That's the cool part about IVF. One of the other things is you kind of got some of the answers to the test before you take the test. Yeah. Because there, you know how many oocytes you have rather than conventional where you, yeah. Before you really start spending money. That's right. And I've made these phone calls. I mean, let's say, Ferris, you've got a cow here, and she only gives you 10 oocytes, and you want to use $500 unit semen. I'm going to call you, and I'm going to say, Ferris, maybe we should rethink this because of the number of oocytes that you have at your disposal. And most of the time, guys like Ferris will say, you're right, let's use this bull instead. I've had clients say this. Well, it's a good thing I'm rich. Press on. <laughs> and that's a direct quote by more than one person. But that's what I meant when I said early in the podcast that you flush cows for different reasons. Okay. Because not everybody needs to make the bottom line look a certain way. Okay. It might be your daughter's national champion female. Okay. Well, if it's your daughter's national champion female and you've got all the money you need to spend, it doesn't matter what that costs. 
press on, young man. Spend the money. <laughs> and I've got clients like that too. So every client gets handled differently and every cow gets handled differently through this process. And if you don't have a connection with your client base, a personal connection, you're doing the entire process of this service. That's why I only take, I won't take more than 170 cows. I only think you can do a good job. We can only do, in my mind, we can only do a good job up to 170 different cows. And then you've got to factor in that many different owners. Trust me, that's a plateful. And I'm not going to turn this ranch into a feed yard. I'm just not. Well, I think your results would probably deteriorate that way, wouldn't they? Yes, they would. And then around here, I want the bucket full. I don't ever want it over full. And when the bucket's over full, then you let some of the little things slip through the crack. And when you're dealing with absentee ownership, you don't let things slip through the crack because people will hand you your head on a platter. Absolutely. I appreciate your time. I know the listeners would agree. I feel like I've learned a tremendous amount, uh, not only today, but in our other uh, conversations previous to this. And we thank you for uh, sitting down with us. Oh, no problem. Enjoyed doing it. Well, folks, that's a wrap for today's episode. I want to say thank you again to our guest, Mr. Steve Yackley, for taking the time out of his schedule to come on and talk to us about the different means and methods for us to achieve the results that we want in our embryo transfer program. As always, questions, comments, concerns, hit us up, shootsidepodcast at gmail.com, shootsidepodcast on all social media accounts, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, no TikTok, but the other three we have. If you like the content that you're hearing, go ahead and give us a review uh, on your favorite listening platform. And we appreciate you guys. Thanks for supporting us as we're wrapping up season two. Uh, Really appreciate the listenership. Really appreciate the support and all the good feedback that we get. But until next time, thank you. We'll talk to you next week.